Well, good morning, good morning. Everyone said, good morning, good morning. Come on, let's try it one more time. Good morning. Yeah, that's good, okay. Well, at least first thing you gotta know is make sure everyone's awake, you know. I almost thought I had to practice my swimming skills on the way in from the parking lot. But my understanding is from Pastor Ryan that you're concluding a series of uh, studies in that ancient book of Proverbs. And he's given me the either wonderful or unenviable task of concluding that study. So I thought what I would do today is kind of do it in a different way. And we would move from the meaning of what you studied the last several weeks to the mechanics of how that works. And if you have your outline, I've given you ahead of time what we're looking at, and we're gonna unpack this a bit as it goes. One of the things I'm fascinated about is the techniques of intergenerational transfer. Because as you've been studying uh, Proverbs, you recognize one generation, a dad, is talking to another generation, a son. And by the way, it's not just sex specific. At the end of the book, it's a mother talking to her family. This kind of thing, a one generation to another to another to another. Now, let me begin by making a global observation first, and then use an illustration to get to our text this morning. The global observation is this, that from the beginning of time, the evil one, Satan, has sought to create a divide between God's work in and among and for his people and their memory of that work. Let me back up. I know it's foggy. Everyone's kind of, you know, there's humidity going on in the thing. But understand, Satan wants to keep us from remembering our history. He wants to sever our connections to our past, to our places. Now, one of the reasons to do that strategically is to create what might be called a fog of amnesia, a cultural Alzheimer's disease. Because when you sever people from their history, then people are open to have any kind of history taken as such, and you can make history say whatever you want it to say. Or as one thinker has called it, chronological snobbery. I love that phrase. Because what chronological snobbery says is that the present is all that matters. We are snobs of the present, the new, the current. But we don't care about the stuff that's happened in the past. Satan wants to disconnect us from God's history, his heritage, and as a result, any hope that God has given in the past that will ultimately come to fruition. Now, if that's the observation, and I'm not asking you to agree or disagree, I'm just asking you to think about it, let me give you the idea that this particular problem is not a new one. And here I want to resurrect in your thinking some dull and boring studies that you probably did in ninth grade English called the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now, most of you were, quite frankly, bored to tears and fell asleep as you started reading through this, so I'm going to remind you of what it was. English class is now in session, and all your worst horrors are about to be revisited upon you. You remember the story. 
Ulysses is the king of Ithaca, and he has gone with several heroes of the Greek pantheon. They've gone to do battle against the Persians in Troy. They have won. Helen has been restored. Troy has come under the influence of the Greeks again. The Persian band has been disrouted. And so the result is, is that Ulysses, then with his men, have to make it back to Ithaca, but it takes them a decade to get there. Ten years. And of course, they go through all sorts of trials and tribulations, and most of you got bored after the first year or so. And you basically use cliff notes to get to the end. I taught it. I know how this works, you see. What you don't probably remember is what happens when he gets back. Because during the 10 years that have happened, his wife, Penelope, has been holding the suitors who want to marry her in order to get Ulysses' wealth. He's been, she's been holding them at bay, hoping that Ulysses will come back. And she's done this by asking them a question that only Ulysses knows. And the question is, what is unique about our marriage bed? Do you, none of you remember this, I know, so I'm just helping you out. And what's unique about it is that one post of the bed is actually a tree that's sunk in the ground. You understand the metaphor and the symbolism? That their marriage bed is anchored to a place. Ulysses comes back, he routes the suitors, and ultimately resumes his role as both husband and king of Ithaca. But there's one job he needs to do before he can lead his people healthily. He's got to take an oar from his ship, put it on his shoulder, and go inland until someone asks him the question, what is that on your shoulder? When that happens, he's supposed to dig a hole in the ground, bury the oar, and then come back to Ithaca. Now, you understand the symbolism that Homer's trying to say. He's basically saying, among other things, that Ulysses' rule is incomplete and not healthy as long as he is unconnected from his place and his past. He needs to see that traveling is ultimately unhealthy for people who are going to be leaders and ultimately wise guys. Without connection, without an understanding of our past, we become people tossed to and fro by the waves of the immediate. You've been meditating on some of the great themes of the book of Proverbs. My hope today is to help you see how this book also helps us understand about how one generation can transfer that wisdom to another one. And so the Proverbs writer does this intermittently all throughout, but I'm going to take one text and kind of parse it for you and have you look at it. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along and look up front. We're looking at Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 27. Let me read it out loud. Proverbs 4, 20 to 27. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to you who find, to those who find them, and health to the man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Now, 
we could have picked any one of a variety of ones, but I like this particular text for what it says. And if you have your outline, you'll recognize what the thesis statement is. The thesis statement says this, that both parents and children, both old folks and young folks, need to be involved in this transfer of wisdom from one generation to another. That's the burden of the book of Proverbs. And as a result, this text says that there are five ingredients that are relatively cross-cultural. They're not kind of the things that are taught in school these days. The first is that you need to pay attention. You need to command attention. You need to listen. And friends, what's said on a micro or one-to-one -one level is being suggested as true on a macro or, let's use it for the sake of the audience, on a global or church level. We need to create environments where folk listen to each other. Secondly, we need to preserve affections. We need to guard our heart. And here, there needs to be an environment where with, within which love is the uh, underlying DNA of relationships, not only one-to-one, -one, but within communities of people who know and love the wisdom of God. Third, we need to speak purely, prevent corrupt speech. Our mouths have to be involved in saying things that help heal and help people learn. Four, we need to plan and act. We need to be straightforward with our eye looking straight ahead and not get distracted. And five, verse 26 and seven, we need to walk on that path. We need to put our plans into action. Now we're gonna look in some detail at the first three and then we're just gonna gloss the last two. So if I take a long time in the first couple, don't get nervous. I got the time down. I know when the gong comes and I'm pulled off, okay? That's how it works. But on the other hand, friends, and I'm treating you all as Christ followers here today. The whole purpose of this is to get us to the point where we celebrate what Jesus has done in the past and make that something significant for our next week, our next month, our next year. This text mirrors many of the others that are found in the book of Proverbs, but I just understand the case. The first thing that the Proverbs writer says is that we need to pay attention to the wisdom that's given to us. My son, verse 20, pay attention to what I say. Pay attention to what I say. Listen closely. Why do we need to command attention and create an enlisting environment? Well, the appeal is to the son's ear. The ear as the organ by which the son attends to information that will direct his vision, develop his worldview, discipline his work. Without gaining attention, any proposed attempt to transfer wisdom is just ephemeral. You gotta get people's attention. Some of you know this as parents. Oftentimes what happens when our kids were not doing well, you get their face, you like that. Don't look anywhere else, I don't want to talk to you. It's like that, grab your attention. And the reason that this is important is because it's by means of what we hear that wisdom gets inside. Paul says it this way in Romans 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. I'm not getting too philosophical here, but understand what's being suggested, is that it's not by sight that wisdom comes, it's by hearing. Somehow or other, God has so structured the reality of life and the reality of the ways we've been made, 
irrespective of the culture, that he can take the words that are spoken, either by me or by the Spirit of God, amplifying them in your head, and all of a sudden, something gets into the head, and it's bombs in your head. Or it may well be that you're reading something in the Word, and you're hearing the Word come, and all of a sudden, the words leap off the page, and all of a sudden, something takes place. The synapses connect. The whole point here is, is that we need to limit those things that would distract us from hearing what God is saying to us. Solomon goes further. He gives his son a reason to hear. He says, consider the consequences. Father's words can be lost, both from sight and soul. Don't let them out of your sight, he says. Keep them within your heart. The great tendency is to lose what's important. And without a culture of listening, what was previously heard will be lost. Or in Solomon's words, don't let them out of your sight or apart from your heart. You've got to cultivate it and grab hold of it and remember it. Because the consequences are you lose it. Thirdly, pay attention because you've got to calculate the outlines, outcomes. The, the Father promises that when you listen to wisdom, it will be healthy to your soul. Now, understand the movement logically here. It goes from external to internal. What the Father says into the ear of the son. What the mother says to the ear of the daughter. And then it goes from the ear to the heart. And from the heart to the whole body. And the result is it goes from hearing to being and leading a healthy life. That's the promise. That's the reason why you need to pay attention. Can I ask myself and you all a question this morning? What's your hearing quotient? Repeatedly, I'm reminded that I'm often distracted and don't listen to what other people, presumably most of the time, my wife, you didn't listen to me. You see. When do you hear God speak? Do you create a listening environment where at least some part of each day you spend time in his presence and seek to hear him speak to your heart. Uh, one of the books I've read recently, it's not an explicitly Christian book, but I, I, I recommend it to you. It's J.D. Vance's book called Hillbilly Elegy. The brief and ugly of J.D. Vance is that he grew up in Kentucky and he counts himself to be a hillbilly. Okay? And through a variety of circumstances ended up barely graduating from high school then being accepted at Ohio State, took a two or three year deferment and entered the Marine Corps, which changed his life, graduated from Ohio State and then got a free ride to Yale Law School. Who would have thunk it? And his book talks about what he observed about people who lived in the poor and forgotten Appalachian Hills of Kentucky, from Alabama to Kentucky to Pennsylvania, some of you know what I'm talking about, all the way up into western New York. You know, my son and daughter and kids live in Lancaster County. You know, the first day of hunting school, schools are canceled because nobody's going to be in anyway. Vance makes this observation. And I want to read it because I think it's instructive. He says, the problem, of course, is that children don't go to church but those who do are less likely to commit crimes and do drugs. So in this world where lots of things are falling apart, the church can be really important backstop, but less and less people are going to church. 
That was certainly something that was true in my life. Vance, I don't know where he stands with Jesus. He may be on the way back by some of the articles that have recently been published about him. He's now working with a venture capitalist firm out in San Diego, uh, Silicon Valley. But the fascinating thing, he's struck by the fact that people who hear the wisdom of God end up living lives that are qualitatively better than those who don't, irrespective of whether they believe in God itself. The wisdom of God has the capacity to change the way people think and how they live. From this general solution and problem, Solomon moves to the key. It's called the heart. Note verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Preserve your affections, those things that you see to be important. Understand why this is important. In the ancient world, people saw the person as a dualistic being, body and spirit. And the heart was the nexus, the connecting point between the spirit that had attention to who God was and the body that kind of walked around. In Western culture, we've been more influenced by things like Freud's ego, superego, and id, or the body, soul, and spirit, a tripartite view. But in the ancient world, they saw people as dualistic beings. And what was true in this schema was the heart was the connecting point. It was the thing that integrated body and mind. Therefore, the heart has a priority because what we are affected by, what we deem to be important, tends to be the thing that becomes the seat of organization. It's the thing that ultimately holds us together. And as such, it needs to be defended because it's vulnerable. Hence, the Proverbs writer says, guard your heart. Don't let it get affected by, don't let it go after things that are not wise. And therefore, this father's talking to this son and he says, one of the ways I want to transfer wisdom to you is I want you to make sure that the stuff that's most important in your life, what you find fascinating, what you find the people that you, you know, parents know this, that the nature of your company ultimately creates the kind of character you'll be. Preserve your affections. The heart is key. And the result is, is that because of this, the heart is the thing that produces. Well, he uses a metaphor. For out of it comes the wellspring. It is the wellspring of life. They, those folk lived in an arid, a desert environment. They knew that wellsprings, water, was key to survival. And the writer of Proverbs is saying the same thing. How you deal with your heart is the key to your survival. And I'm going to ask the question of myself, and I'm asking of you, is my heart a desert or is it an oasis? Is my heart one of these things that when people come near to me, they're rejuvenated, they're enervated, they're ultimately refreshed? Or do people hang out with me and say, oh, I can't wait for that guy. See, the wise older generation person seeks to provide for the next generation this insight that what is the objects of your affection is the key ultimately to your health and relationships. How is your heart? A uh, little personal story. Uh, last couple years I've been involved with a men's Bible study. Some of the guys have come here. In fact, uh, Tim's with us today and some of the other guys came just to kind of make me feel good when they're here because they say all nice things even though you, you guys are nice too, but I mean, they, they are not nice to me. 
And one of the things we've been studying this uh, spring and this fall is the idea that when you want to make disciples of people, you need to know who you are. That we tend to replicate who we are in the lives of others based on who we're becoming. Or as the Apostle Paul would say, recognize who you are in Christ, Ephesians 1 and 2, and therefore be who you are. It's the same point. As you understand what your heart is in its relationship to God, you will affect others around you, even if you don't have any formal program. And some of you remember that. You remember the sterling people of your history. And you may not remember much of what they say, but you remember what kind of people they were. This writer, this dad, this older generation person is saying, guard what becomes the object of your affection because it is the thing that drives your relationships. Now, there's a logical connection between listening and labeling or loving here and what Jesus noted he said a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasures produce evil note carefully Luke 6 for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks which gets us to our third point speak purely verse 24 put away perversity from your mouth keep corrupt talk far from your lips here the father's logic tends to be somewhat circular He's saying that words act as indications of what's going on. What we speak lets people know what our heart is interested in. And the other thing that's true is that words also, we speak purely, keep evil from getting into our hearts. Now this is really wonderful and it also can be an indictment. When I was a student at the University of Connecticut just down the road, one of the things I loved to do was to swim. And the people of my floor knew all about the Yukon swim team. Somewhere down the road, I got involved in an investigative Bible study with some of those same people. And they asked me the question, they said, Bob, if this stuff about Jesus is so important, how come we don't hear much about it? We hear a lot about swimming, but not a lot about this Jesus as Savior. And, and I was taken to task. What you find to be valuable becomes the thing you talk about. <laughs> And one of the things that this writer, this proverbial wise man, says to his son is speak purely. Don't allow your words to betray a heart that is not in love with Jesus. On a more positive note, what we say indicates the health of our heart and the means of holding it together. I don't live in your community. I only come periodically. But as you spend time talking to each other before and after church, are you more concerned about what's happening with the Patriots or Yukon women's basketball or stuff like that? Or are you concerned about letting people know, did I see a God sighting in the last week? Let me tell you what I think happened. Do you talk to one another about answers to prayer? Do you share burdens with each other, much like we did about the folk in Las Vegas? What immediately comes to mind is my son and daughter and I lived in North Las Vegas for three years. He was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base. 
And so I'm praying for the folk at Grace Point Church because they have a ministry in Vegas. Oh, immediately that's important to me because I have relationship with those people. So, if the wisdom and intergenerational transfer of wisdom is to take place, we must move from the past and the present into the future. And you'll recognize that the first three of these things talks about stuff that presumably has been done in the past. The father says, I want to get your attention, get your ears, and listen. Listen to what I say. Presumably, because I've got wisdom that God has given me in the past, and I'm giving it to you now. And he's basically saying, then, love correctly. Protect your heart so you can hear what's going on. And then learn by speaking. Don't do corrupt stuff, but give pure stuff, okay? Now the father moves the son into the future of what he ought to do. And in verse 25, he says, plan ahead. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze straight before you. I'm not going to say a lot here because, of course, this is stuff you've been looking at for the last several weeks. But the point that the, 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 the generational transfer is, he's saying, look, go and make a plan and make sure that it's a singular plan been reading a book recently by Gary Keller. He's taken the business world by storm. It's called One Thing, The One Thing. And Keller basically says that multitasking is a myth. What multitasking does is it distracts us from the most important thing, which is the one thing that's most important for us to do. So if I'm asking you a question, what's the one thing that God's calling you to do in the next day, the next week? What are you going to do to not put everything else out of the way? and just do that one thing. It could be a global thing. My one thing is to be a person who's attractive and not a bitter old man. My one thing could be, I want to know my wife and my kids and my grandkids to know that I'm very much involved in their life. What's the one thing that's most important so that you can ultimately use that to distract, to take away all the other distractions? That's what living wisely is all about. Where is your focus? And when you are in the moment, are you in the moment and focused on it, or most of the case that happens to me, you're thinking about 5,000 other things that you'd like to be doing. Can you get your discipline in your mouth to be involved in one thing such that God can ultimately use and bless that? Now we come to the last thing. As a result of the plan, then walk a plain path. Verses 26 and 7. Make level paths for your feet. Verse 27. Don't swerve to the right. You understand what's being said. When you ultimately end up doing it, do it. Don't get distracted. But friends, don't be people who are so confused by whatever is going on around you that you don't make any path at all. Straight and level paths picture a lifestyle that doesn't amble or wander, but gets the important things of life done. Now let me back away from this, because all this is pretty straightforward. You can understand what's going on. What I've said is not particularly new. But what's fascinating is in the ancient world, this stuff was of incredible importance and people craved, they would pay big bucks for wisdom. The Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, gives him all sorts of stuff because he had the ability to speak what was wise and true. And obviously he had gotten it from God and he had given it to his people. As a result, his people flourished. Now, often Solomon didn't follow his wisdom. He had all those wives and got distracted. 
But the wisdom in terms of the Proverbs stuff and the other things that he gave was passed on from generation to generation. And you can make a direct line that it went to people like Isaiah, who ultimately helps people understand what's going on regarding the wisdom of God. It's given ultimately to people like Jeremiah, who cry tears over the fact that his people have lost it. It comes to Daniel, and God gives wisdom to Daniel to interpret the dreams, dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, and ultimately give dreams that ultimately portray what the future would be. And friends, it comes all the way through the Old Testament prophets, and even between the prophetic periods between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. One of the places it goes is to an intertestamental book of the Apocrypha known as Ecclesiasticus. It's not considered inspired of God, but what's fascinating is how the writer, Sirach, looks at wisdom, and he personifies it in Ecclesiasticus 51, verses 23 to 28. He says these words, and I want you to listen carefully to them because they get to the dynamite part of where we're ending this morning. Sirach says, draw near to me, you unlearned, and dwell in the house of wisdom. Wherever you are slow, and whatever you have to say to these things, seeing your souls are very thirsty, I opened, that is I, wisdom, opened my mouth and said, buy her for yourselves without money. Wisdom, can, you can't pay for it, but when it comes, grab hold of it. Put your neck under the yoke. The Hebrew often has my yoke. And let your soul receive instruction. She, that is wisdom, is hard at hand to find. Behold with your eyes how I have but, have but little labor and have gotten unto me much rest. Get learning with great sum of money and yet get much gold for her. Now, some of you already know where I'm at because you've heard these words paraphrased by Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus says these words, come unto me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the big point, friends. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. <laughs> when you walk with Jesus, you have all the wisdom God wants to give you. Closing illustration, then we'll pray. Okay? One of the delights of the last several months I've had has been teaching a, a, a mid-50s-year-old man, Pascal DeVoe, how to swim. Pascal is from France. He's forgotten more theology than I ever learned. He's a wonderful guy and he speaks with a bit of an accent. He's come to this country and he wanted to learn to swim because he loved his wife and his kids and they all loved the water. He, by his own admission, was petrified of the water. He'd go to the beach, he'd grab onto the sand and not go near it. So he came to me and he says, Bob, Bob, I want you to teach me to swim. Really? Now, teaching adult learners to do something that they fear is not an easy task, but I was up for the task. And as a result, we got to the pool. You know, last week, Pascal swam 50 yards backstroke in 62 seconds. 10 seconds of which was because he hit his head on the wall at one end and got disoriented and it took him a while to get going back the other way. So I think he's even, even in the 50s right now, you see. 
But the hoot has been that what was a point of fear is something he no longer fears. He says, Bob, you've messed with my head. I don't know how to think about the water anymore. I almost like it. Now, friends, my role with Pascal is not unlike Jesus' role with y'all. He says, don't get weighed down by stuff, but come to me, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and in the process, pay attention, preserve your affection, speak purely, plan and act straightforwardly, and walk a straight and plain path. And if you do, regardless of the circumstances of life, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're going to have a chance to do that. We're going to celebrate communion, whereby we remember our history and we let Jesus come and speak into our lives and we say, oh Lord, thank you for taking my place. I'll pray, and then Steve will take over. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for the fact that you've not left us alone, that you've granted us a history that not only brings wisdom to our life, to our heart, to our feet, to our mouths, but you invite us to be a part of a community that similarly listens to what you say and seeks to follow you and where you lead. Don't know where the people are in this room this morning. If there are folk here who are still struggling to understand what this Jesus stuff is all about, would you ultimately encourage them to come near to you and receive you? And for those of the rest of us who have been on the way a bit, allow us to be renewed and more than renewed to reflect Jesus to the world around us. For we pray in the name of Jesus.